Hi, my name is Steve Bunnell, and I'm here with two of my O'Melveny colleagues, Damali Taylor and Eric Sibbett, and we're here to talk about fintech. Um, let me let uh, each of uh, Damali and Eric introduce themselves to you and talk a little bit about their practice in the fintech area. Uh, why don't we start with Damali? Thanks, Steve. Excited to be here. Uh, I am a partner in the White Collar Group here at O'Melveny, and I rejoined the firm a couple of years ago. Before rejoining O'Melveny, I was a federal prosecutor. I was uh, an assistant United States attorney here in, in, in San Francisco, and as part of that, I investigated and indicted uh, lots of different kinds of defendants, including uh, blockchain companies. Most specifically, I supervised the indictment of a rather notorious uh, digital currency exchange called BTCE. And that was uh, my investigation and an indictment of companies in the blockchain space is what got me interested in this, in this uh, area to begin with a few years ago. And now after rejoining O'Melveny, part of what I do is advise companies who are in the fintech space, um, most usually with respect to their, their uh, anti-money laundering obligations under, under the Bank Secrecy Act. But we advise companies in, in, in a whole host of different kinds of matters, including SEC matters, uh, matters before the DOJ and state's attorney general. So one of the things you sometimes hear from people who were, say, like me, a history major in college is, you know, I'm not a technical person. This fintech stuff sounds kind of techy. Do I need to be somebody with some computer science background or an engineering major uh, in order to get into this space? Did, did you have that kind of background? I'm a literature and philosophy <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, that, that, that's my college background. So, so you and I can sit yes. around in cafes yes. and, and, and discuss the great books. I know um, this stuff very so, conceptually. So, so how is it that someone like you um, has been successful in this space? Well, I think, you know, I mean, you know, because you were a prosecutor yourself. I mean, as a prosecutor, your, your job is to, to sometimes digest really complicated information and make it palatable for everyday citizens, right? That's what you do when you're speaking to a jury. And so you, you get very good at understanding things that should be incredibly technical and are sometimes very difficult. And I am not an engineer. I am not a tech person. I understand these things very conceptually. I cannot get down into the weeds with you about how, you know, cryptographics work. I mean, I, that, that, that's not my expertise. But I do understand conceptually kind of what, what, are, what, are, what are legal pitfalls and what aren't mm -hmm. legal pitfalls. And that's where, that's where I add value. It's not on the technical side of things. Yeah, I think that's Eric would, but, <laughs> but, I, but I don't. Yeah, Eric, Eric, Eric can fake computer science when he needs to. <laughs> but, but I think your point is a critical one, which is that lawyers, um, good lawyers are, are essentially communicators. They're translators. And so, you know, the, the skill that you provide is not being the smartest engineer in the room. It's being the person that can explain it to everybody in the room. Yeah. And, uh, and that's, what, that, that's the challenge of it, in addition to, you know, it has some kind of cool tech stuff, too. Yeah. So Eric, what's your story? How did you how did you get into this space? And are you also a literature major from college? <laughs> I'm not a literature major. I'm an economics major. But um, you know, I originally got into this space. You know, my background is as a traditional capital markets lawyer, working on securities offerings and, and IPOs and the like. Uh, and and over the years, um, you know, I've done a lot of stuff with with financial services companies doing offerings in particular. And my first introduction into what you might call fintech was actually when I was practicing in Tokyo. And there was a whole class of lenders that emerged to serve a gap in the financial system where in Japan you had 
large banks that would lend to large corporate clients at a very low, sometimes cases even negative interest rates. Yet regular individuals, small, medium-sized businesses were credit starved and really had, you know, at one point choice between loan sharks or, or no financing. And so there was a whole whole sector of, uh, of lenders that emerged uh, in, in kind of a, a gray legal environment uh, and, and using kind of technology in their own form of credit scoring to serve this, this, that, that need. Um, and then over time, uh, you know, looking as things evolved in the United States, you got involved with some of the, the marketplace lenders, uh, you know, trying to, to, trying to uh, in, in essence, disintermediate the role of traditional banks between people who are willing to lend money to individuals and, um, you know, people that, that needed, you know, borrowers that needed that financing. More recently, you know, the focus has been a lot more on blockchain uh, as an emerging area, and that's where we kind of spend most of our time these days in Melbourne. Uh, and, uh, and currently I had our, our FinTech industry group, uh, and it's been, uh, been a very interesting journey. What, what kind of companies are are you representing in the blockchain space? So, I mean, it's quite, it's quite a range. So we work with a lot of the major uh, trading platforms that help facilitate, uh, uh, you know, transactions, exchanges of, of cryptocurrencies. Uh, we do a lot of work with uh, startups, uh, you know, emerging companies that are uh, seeking financing or, or trying to figure out how to structure their businesses uh, and, uh, you know, with investors. Uh, looking at and doing diligence around making particular investments. And then others that are just building businesses that are tied to the blockchain, but uh, you know, kind of kind of uh, trying to build businesses around the space or using it you know, as an enterprise solution. And that, and that ranges from some smaller companies to, to very large companies. And when, you're, when your client is a small company, um, I assume some of the compliance issues um, are are going to be handled differently than, say, if you're a major Wall Street bank. And so, how how do you try to how do you try to adapt your advice to, you know, what's realistic for, for a particular client? That I mean, that, that that's certainly a challenge, especially in an area like fintech, because financial services, given that you know, kind of their centrality to to the economy, are really one of the more regulated areas of the economy. And so, like, unlike a lot of other areas where, uh, you know, a startup can start to operate and has some general business and kind of compliance things it needs to be concerned with, fundamentally, the business model of a fintech company has to deal with and navigate complicated regulations, often which were not, not put in place thinking about alternative business models. And so, you know, it often becomes a process of, of trying to stage things uh, for a company. You know, obviously, in the front end, you need to have some counseling and make sure that there, you know, there is a path forward. Uh, but in terms of compliance, the, you know, the type of compliance that a, you know, that a three-person startup uh, you know, makes sense for them is going to be very different from a large multinational financial institution. And so it's often kind of staging that as when they get out to proof of concept that there's actually a real business here, and then they they try to kind of build and augment, you know, around the compliance, uh, you know, sort of. On an ongoing basis, and um, you know it is a challenge because, you know, unlike some other areas where you can help a startup, you know, raise money in a Series A round and kind of get them off the ground, there is a necessary regulatory overlay that has to be solved for at an early stage in the company's life cycle. 
And Damali, when you're dealing with um, regulators and enforcement agencies in this space, I assume sometimes you're dealing with people who actually aren't all that sophisticated around the technology. Um, so if, if you're a, a regulator, you're an enforcement agent, you're a prosecutor, you don't really get the tech, but you have, you have a sense that there's something to look for. Yeah. Put yourself in the shoes of, of the person on the other side. What are they looking for as an investigator or as a potential prosecutor? Uh, so I can tell you generally what uh, prosecutors are looking for, or what uh, SEC lawyers are looking for, and what regulators are looking for. And I use regulator as a kind of umbrella term. Uh, as far as prosecutors, uh, as a U.S. attorney, I was looking for violations of criminal law. So that includes, uh, for example, if we're dealing with a digital currency exchange, whether or not that exchange uh, registered with FinCEN and the various states that also um, regulate uh, the activity of the digital currency exchanges. Uh, I was also looking at, you know, whether uh, they were involved or complicit in money laundering activity. Uh, for better or worse, the dark net is still um, a place where certain crimes are pervasive, you know, sex trafficking, drug trafficking, terrorist financing, and uh, the extent to which digital currency exchanges like BTCE are complicit in those activities. You're certainly looking for those kinds of crimes, also fraud. Uh, the SEC, they're focused uh, on whether or not uh, a token issuer is required to register as a security or whether some exemption applies. If we're talking about uh, what, what's now called like social media influencers, um, it's, it's, you know, they're looking for whether or not those influencers uh, are disclosing payments that they've received from the companies that they're advertising. Um, states AGs are looking at things from a consumer protection standpoint. Uh, so any misrepresentations made in connection with, with token issuances, any misrepresentations made, you know, in general about what these companies are doing and the effect that those misrepresentations have on consumers, um, including privacy obligations. And so there's a wide array of uh, government bodies, entities that are looking into blockchain companies, companies that are in this space, and they're all looking at it from slightly different standpoints, uh, but they often work together. And um, you know, you can have an SEC civil action at the same time as a, a DOJ criminal action and very often those two offices are working together in tandem. Do you expect to see more enforcement activity in the future as, as the regulations kind of mature and people try to figure out how to apply them? Yeah, I, I do, which is unfortunate. I, mean, I think the SEC's kind of thrown down the gauntlet a little bit. Uh, they're in a dispute right now with, with you know, a token issuer called KIC. Um, and so, I mean, they, they've kind of laid a path forward for companies that will self-report early. And, you know, I think Eric knows this too. There was a, a company called Gladius where they issued a cease and desist order, but essentially did not issue any penalties or fines because that company early reported. And so I think what the SEC has essentially said is if you come in and report, um, we may stop what you're doing and you may not get to, to, to issue in the way that you wanted to, but we're not going to assess a heavy penalty. Everyone else proceed at your own risk, which, you know, that, that's a difficult path forward. For, 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 you know, for most companies. Um, so I, I think unless you're going that path, we are going to see a lot more enforcement actions, definitely from the SEC, from FinCEN, um, and, you know, DOJ, U.S. Attorney's Office. I mean, they're, they're looking for, for, for evidence of crimes. And so, you know, when you're talking about digital currency exchanges, you know, there's, there's, there's certainly opportunity there. 
and, and Eric, isn't it fair to say that this isn't just a United States issue, this is a global issue? And are, are you seeing you know, different challenges in terms of the regulatory environment in different parts of the world? Uh, I mean, absolutely. I mean, you know, in general, financial services, because of the ease with which capital can move across borders, is a, is a, is a global phenomenon. And it leads to a form of, of regulatory competition. So, you know, as, as companies, investors, you know, decide where they're going to build their businesses, where they're going to operate, you know, they, they, they look on a global basis and, and make decisions accordingly. And so there, there's an element of, you know, regulators throughout the world as, you know, as emerging new business models um, come out, trying to determine what the right form of regulation is. But that's also against the backdrop of, you know, people uh, can move, you know, and, and operate their business in various places. And so there is a degree of regulatory competition uh, where kind of businesses decide where and, and where they're going to operate, you know, partially in consideration of the, the regulatory landscape. It sounds like it's an area where both the technology and the rules and regulations that govern it are rapidly evolving at the same time. And that seems like an exciting mix for, for any lawyer, but I would think in particular for somebody who's starting out because it's not, it's not an area where there's 50 years of case law that you have to necessarily read and understand in order to understand where the law is today. Um, it, it, it strikes me as an as a area where somebody coming out of law school can fairly quickly become a real expert in the space. Would you guys agree with that? I think especially someone coming out of law school, just because, you know, they're, they're, there's, this technology is so much more part of their everyday lives and for those of us who have to learn it. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I, I think that their law students are conversant in a way that, that I certainly wasn't 10 years ago and I'm sure, you know, you weren't or perhaps Eric was, but, you know, for, most of us weren't. And most of us had to learn for whatever reasons during the course of our practice. But I think, you know, and I've spoken at law schools and just talking to law students about this, they're so much more knowledgeable uh, than, than the rest of us. And so, you know, there are even, I mean, there are blockchain courses now at law school, which is great. Um, so I, I think that they see that this is, you know, one way or another, this is going to become a part of our everyday lives. I mean, fintech is, it's, it's literally everything that we do now. It's the way that we transact business now in a way that 10 years ago it just wasn't. Yeah. Well, I think Melvin's sponsor is one of the uh, blockchain blockchain journals at one of the major law schools yeah. in the area. So, um, Eric, if you were, say, a first-year law student and you were sort of intrigued by this space, are there things that you would recommend that person take in law school or experiences that they should seek out while in law school to help prepare them for being a lawyer in the fintech area? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that, um, I mean, fintech by its nature is very multidisciplinary. Uh, and so it involves really, I mean, here at Melody, almost every area in which we practice. And, you know, ultimately, you know, as a fintech lawyer, you're in charge of helping to navigate and pull all those pieces together. But at the same time, I think you need to have a, call it a core discipline, something that you're, you can kind of you master and that you own. And so whatever, you know, whatever the area of interest might be, whether it's kind of on the litigation side or transaction side, regulatory, et cetera, I mean, it's really important to become an expert in, in one area. Um, while at the same time, since this you know, deals with you know, financial services and technology, getting exposure um, to those, those sorts of subjects generally, I think is, is really helpful. So I, I wouldn't say that there's sort of one set of you know, kind of classes or curriculum that you need to take. 
um, but you know, kind of focusing on on, on mastering a, a specific discipline, an area of interest, and really applying it in the financial service context, and in classes that help provide that kind of exposure is probably you know, the, the best way to, to start out. Damali, do you have any any thoughts, any advice for law students coming out in this area? Yeah, I mean, I think a huge, you know, a huge ever burgeoning area is kind of data security, data privacy, and you know, that's that's the question that everyone's trying to answer. Um, and so, you know, as Eric mentioned, if you're finding an area, you know, kind of an area of focus, um, especially if you have the technological background and law degree, I think that would be a fantastic uh, kind of avenue to pursue. Yeah, I um, I think that it's, it is important to have at least a basic sort of cyber literacy. Um, this was actually something when I was in the government and I was the general counsel of the Homeland Security Department. We had 1,800 lawyers there, and I was struck by how few of them felt comfortable with, with some of the basic concepts of like how the Internet works uh, for lawyers, not for engineers. And so we, we put a whole curriculum in place for the lawyers to, to help them get up to a, a kind of level where they could have at least a conversation with their operational clients. And I think if you're if you're somebody that wants to practice at a law firm, and you want to advise clients who are in the tech industry, it helps to understand at least the basic concepts and vocabulary that they're throwing around. Yeah. You don't have to be an engineer to do that, um, but it might be helpful if you if you have zero tech background when you go to law school, seek out a a, a class, maybe an interdisciplinary class where somebody's talking about policy issues and um, technology or. Uh, privacy issues or cybersecurity issues. I think I think you want to kind of round out a, a general platform, and then and then you have to be nimble because you don't know where the tech's going, you don't know where the rules are are, are going to be five years from now. And so uh, it's one of the things I love about litigation and, and sort of general investigative work is it's basically about learning new stuff yeah. uh, and then explaining it to somebody else. Yeah, uh, and that makes it kind of fun. And one of the other things that's exciting about in particular the blockchain space, is the potential social impact of the technology as it, as it matures. We're not really there yet, but if you think about the way cryptocurrencies have the potential to expand financial inclusion, I mean, there are several billion people on the planet who are unbanked yeah. or underbanked. And if you can uh, give them access to financial services through their cell phone and they they can participate in the world financial market without having a bank account or a credit card. That's that's a big change in the world. And so in, in one small way, if you're working on fintech issues, you're helping to move yeah. the you know the larger society in a in a more inclusive way. Yeah. I think it's like um, two billion people, which is amazing. Yeah, it, it is a huge and it's yeah. a huge difference having a bank account and not having a bank yeah. account in terms of you know what you can do in your life. But that's why I think, you know, my, my, my particular, not, not my concern, but, you know, the world's concern right now really is data security and data privacy. I think we are moving towards, you know, most financial transactions happening on a cell phone, right? Where if, if we're not there yet, we're, we're very close. And so as we move more towards that world, you know, integrity of those transactions is going to be huge because, you know, blockchain is great, but it's, it's, not, a, it's not a panacea, right? It's not a cure-all. It's, it is, you know, all, all this stuff is, is, is hackable, right? You can, you, can, you can access people's, you know, people's data even on the blockchain. Um, and so I think that, that you know, that, that's a big deal. And that if, if, I were, if I were entering law school now 
and I wanted to kind of, you know, find some place where I could provide value, that's what I would do. Eric, are there any particular use cases for, we're talking about blockchain technology here, but I guess we could, we could broaden the question to be any kind of fintech um, that you find, you know, sort of particularly intriguing? So, I mean, there, you know, there, there are a variety of potential applications. I, I think, um, you know, any kind of system, uh, you, you, you know, really what blockchain does is it helps, helps, um, helps disintermediate a, a lot of kind of trusted intermediaries. So if you think about things like, a, you know, a stock exchange or a bank, um, you know, there's always someone that's verifying, a central authority that's verifying whether a, a certain transaction took place and whether, you know, money has moved from one place to another place. What blockchain enables is for that to be uh, essentially decentralized, so so that that, that kind of the the verification and recording of those kind of transactions can be done more broadly, and there's not a single point of failure or a single authority which you know can 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 often um, you know it, you know receive very high compensation for acting as that central intermediary. What what blockchain does is is really kind of enable. Um, kind of a broader participation. In a way, it's, it's analogous to, you know, with, with the internet where that kind of democratized access to information, uh, which was kind of, you know, stuck in more sort of central things like, you know, libraries and databases that were, you know, maintained by corporations. And so that, that's very interesting. Now, there are, you know, there, there are a whole variety of applications to that. People talk about, um, you know, having access to your own healthcare data, making that portable and secure and being able to move that around rather than in the kind of legacy, uh, very inefficient system that we have. That's an interesting application. Um, there, are, there are things like shipping. If you think about what it takes to uh, move, um, say, uh, you know, a widget from uh, a factory in China to an end market in uh, the United States, there are so many different points, uh, you know, of contact between shippers and insurers and you know, kind of people who are processing things and who bears the risk of loss if something happens at a certain point of a chain point in the, in the, in the chain uh, and it's in, in many ways it's it's not not very efficient and it's not very transparent and so what blockchain helps to, to enable is that transparency and and participation and uh, you know, we haven't really talked about this aspect of things but but automating a lot of that through through kind of smart contracts where Rather than having a person deciding that you know this has happened, where you can kind of verify transactions through a blockchain and uh, kind of be able to see everything uh, in real time. So, where do the lawyers fit in? The technology sounds really cool, and it's if it does even ten percent of all the cool things that it has the potential to do, it'll really have a huge impact. Um, but how do the lawyers contribute to that? process of, of the technology maturing. Damali? Yeah, I mean, so Eric certainly contributes uh, a, a great deal on the front end, right, in helping to, to structure these transactions and set up these, you know, set up these companies. Um, certainly, you know, one thing, and I don't mean to be, you know, the mistress of, of doom and gloom here, but, you know, where, you know, where, where, where lawyers like me come in, you know, when you have inquiries by the SEC when you have, you know, DOJ inquiries, you know, that's, that's, that's what we do. Um, and we also help to advise companies of, of potential pitfalls in dealing with these regulators and these agencies. You know, one thing that's really interesting to me is, 
you have a, a 25 digit private key. Like how do you, you're not going to remember that, right? So that you're going to put that in your email somewhere. You're going to put that in some, you know, you're going to, you're going to make a record of that somewhere because no one remembers kind of passwords that are that, that are that long. And all of the, all the ways that we store information these days, they're hackable. And I think that as we all become more acclimated to blockchain, as we become more kind of like accustomed to these things, my fear is that you you have all of these incidences of, of people hacking in, into you know people's accounts and getting you know not all of a sudden not all of your money is gone and there, I think there will be increased litigation as we become more comfortable in this space and it's both exciting and terrifying right uh, to see where we're where, where we're going to end up and how these things are going to be kind of determined and adjudicated and so that's why again, harping on, on data security, yeah. but it's a really interesting problem that I think we're not too far from. Yeah, no, I think, uh, I think there's, the, there's always going to be a tension between um, sort of consumer protection and, and sort of innovation. Yeah. And the regulators and the enforcement authorities are, are looking to make sure that citizens, consumers, investors are not taken advantage of yeah. and are not made vulnerable by the technology. The companies, it seems to me, are, are trying to satisfy the consumers and trying to satisfy the regulators. And, and I sometimes I think there's a part of my, my practice in this space that I would describe as people and companies that are misunderstood by the government. <laughs> yes. And, and, sort of, and so the role of the lawyer isn't necessarily, I mean, there's, there's an advocacy piece, but there's also just kind of an explaining piece, mm-hmm. a teaching piece. Um, and I think at the end of the day, if you can satisfy a regulator that the harm that the regulator's concerned about is actually being dealt with, perhaps not exactly the way a big bank would deal with it, but that there are some protections around the way the keys are being custodied. Yeah. And there's some protections around the kind of information that uh, investors are getting. Um, and that's that's one of the challenges as, as I think this area moves forward. Yeah. And, and as more, as less techie people get into it. Yeah, right? So exactly. Right now, not, you know, for the most part, you don't have... Uh, you know, kind of retail mom and pops buying a lot of cryptocurrencies. It tends to be more sophisticated, techie people, yeah. at least a lot of them. But but that's going to change. So, Eric, what do you think about that? No, no. I mean, I, I would add that you know, you know, innovation generally leads regulation, right? And so regulation is, is is generally in a catch-up mode when you have new business models and things coming out. So. You know, as a as a lawyer, a lot of your you know kind of real especially in an area like fintech is to determine um, when you have something new that wasn't designed for existing legacy regulation, is to determine how can a you know how can a company still build that business, or how can you advise them on what you know the various potential risks are given the legacy regulation, and help them make informed decisions about you know what's an appropriate commercial or legal risk to take. Uh, is a really important part of, of what we do, uh, you, you know. And similarly, you, you know, the, you know, this is a, you know, this is an interactive ecos- ecosystem. So it's also educating regulators um, and and helping them understand the technology and and helping them shape appropriate kind of policies given their regulatory objectives. And you know, in some cases, that is, you know, that's that's talking to a regulator as they shape things more informally through guidance and other means, or or or, or how they. May you know exercise prosecutorial discretion, et cetera. In some cases, it's actually changing the laws and regulations, right? And so, so there are, you know there are initiatives both at state and federal level, for example, in the blockchain space, to try to try to redefine some of the existing legal concepts in a way that um, you know helps to 
promote, you know, legitimate regulatory objectives, but also, you know, provide space for, for innovation. I mean, the, the, the word itself, the contraction fintech, kind of tells you the challenge. You're combining the financial legacy world with technology, and you're, you're trying to meld it together in a way that makes sense, um, both from the company perspective and from the regulator perspective and the consumer perspective. Well, what I think fintech, what, what I think makes fintech, which is, because I mean, fintech conceptually, like technology and, and financial services, I mean, that's been around for forever, right? But it's... We live in a world now where that happens with immediacy, right? Like that's the difference. It's the velocity like, is much faster. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and so that's that's when I think of fintech. That's what it, cause really it's everything, right? It's, it's just like it's the way we do business these days. Like everything is fintech, but it's like it's kind of like how quickly these transactions happen. Like we're we're now in a Venmo world, right? Where it's like uh, you know we're not we're not talking about seven day transactions anymore. It's a fascinating area. Um, any closing comments, um, Eric? So, I mean, I, I think that, um, you know, whenever you're you're at a kind of point where the economy is going through major changes and you look at something like FinTech where, um, you know, in Northern California, we like to talk about disruption. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the, you know, you, you think about what, what what is FinTech? So, so you know, fi- financial services and technology. And obviously, you know, financial services have been around for a while and they always use technology. And so so what's, what's, different, what's different about FinTech, right? Well, what I think is different is that it's it's using technology in a way that disrupts kind of traditional ways of providing financial services. And whenever you do that, you create the potential for major winners and major losers. And so, yeah, there's a lot of speculation out there about the value of, of unicorns and sort of, you know, are, you know are, are they really worth more than a billion dollars? Um, uh, you, you know, but, but the... The winners out there will be very big winners. And you look at, you know, kind of prior ways, we look at companies like Amazon and Google and Apple, um, kind of the, the major, a lot of the major companies. Now, what we're looking for is people make placing bets on who, who are going to be the big winners and who are, who are going to be the new kind of intermediaries that are, that are taking the place of some of the existing intermediaries. And so, um, you know, it's hard to speculate on whether, you know, some, a particular company is worth a lot or not, but it's, there's, there's clearly going to be some very important, significant players that emerge from this, and a number that will, will fail, fail and be, you know, spectacularly bad investment. Okay. We'll, we'll check back in 10 years to see, see if you're right. Or two. <laughs> or, or two months. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Seven months. <laughs> All right. I think that's it. Thanks. Thanks, guys. <laughs>